you just have to educate them. If you want crackling, it's got to be left on the pig, and you're going to have that beautiful fat under it. So deal with it. I mean, <laughs> it's just beautiful. It's, it's, it's a beautiful piece of meat, and the fat is amazing. It's flavour. So uh, it just renders throughout the meat. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Inspiration often comes from life experiences, a moment in time that changes the way you think and the way you want to live your life. For Damon Porter of Saison Small Goods, that moment happened in the south of France, where great charcuterie inspired him to take his career in a new direction. Damon, how are you? Yeah, good. How are you going? Thanks very much for the opportunity. It's great to have you on the show. You had a bit of a, a shift in career inspired by some experiences. Take us back to, to France and the experiences that you, that you had um, that sort of changed, made you change track. Yeah, so, I mean, it wasn't 100% France. I mean, it was always on, it was always my favourite way of eating and I always loved those small goods. Um, like the idea of just having all the bread, the, all the um, pickles, all the meats and stuff laid out, it's just sharing and everything like that it's just it's just my favorite way so it seemed like um ever since i sort of got involved with it um after being a chef that's where my career started heading towards so of course i wanted to go to the south south of france and um and learn that side of it over there so like not just um dry cured stuff but some of the cooks pates and terrines and all that stuff as well i just love it take us back to your experiences over there do you have any that you can tell us about that sort of were really important in the um in inspiring you yeah i mean in australia like a lot of the cuts the thing i realized the most was when, when i got there a lot of the cuts in australia come in a cryobaked bag and that's you don't see any side of the butchery but in the restaurants over there i mean it's all whole animal um so you're using saws you're using all this stuff and you actually I worked in a small place to start with and um, I worked with this chef that was from Corsica, which done all the salamis, and it was literally hung in the cupboard. Like it's it's totally random but so fun. And um, so you're getting whole hog in. And I just remember seeing where every single part of the animal went. Like it just has a home. So like the blood goes to the black pudding. Like the back legs will hang a prosciutto or we'll do a noir de jambon or um, the bellies will get cured down or they'll rolled. And just seeing everything having a home and just knowing where it all goes was just phenomenal. It was just an eye-opener. And, I, and, and we ended up doing the same thing, of course, why not, when we got back with the caro, just um, treating the whole – I mean, just treating the whole animal differently. Um, yeah. That, I think that was the biggest eye-opener. Tell us about what it was like when you got back. Was it was it difficult to get it and challenging to get it up and running and dive into the world of charcuterie? Uh, it's no, I wouldn't say it was difficult. I mean, doing it in a restaurant is a different. I mean, a big batch in the restaurant was ten kilo. The, the more difficult thing was starting to take it to the next level in wholesale, and and doing batches of like two hundred plus. It's that that's where it gets difficult and you've got to take different approaches to things. And um, it's been a massive learning curve over the last year. And you're sort of going in it. I'm not going into it like a butcher or a saloon maker. I'm going in looking at it like a chef and just saying, what do I want out of this product? And, and what can I do differently to improve this? 
rather than, like I'm still taking those traditional techniques that you've learned, like still doing it really slow, still using that nice slow curing bacteria, like no heat treating, but then just trying to introduce different things that sort of, that just take on different notes, like um, like, this, like using spe- specified cuts in your salami rather than just it being trim. Um, introducing a couple of native stuff, like the native pepperberry and anise myrtle, incredible. Um, we do a wild venison salami, which I um, get up from my mate Alan. So they all come in whole, all get broken down, sometimes hides on and everything. And I've got halfway through the tanning process, but haven't been able to finish yet. But that's another story. But, um, yeah, and so we do a, a wild venison salami with um, all the gin botanicals that I, I do in my gin at home, don't tell anyone, <laughs> and um, the strawberry gum, and it's incredible. Like, the flavour comes out amazingly. So it's just fun having to, having to play with a few little things like that rather than just, um, like, like I said, using the truthful techniques but just having a bit of fun with it. In those early days when you first started in the restaurant making uh, different sorts of small goods, what was what was a moment where you really felt that you'd you'd sort of nailed it? Uh, the, the restaurant that I was running was super open kitchen, like literally. If they were dining for lunch, we had this massive big copper pass, and so the pigs would get walked to the restaurant, slap straight on the pass, and I mean, one side you're plating up dishes, the other side you're burning out a pig, <laughs> and so like it was. The way it was received it was actually phenomenal. Like there's people coming up and asking questions, and, and I guess like when you're sending out 90% of the, the customers that came in would have the charcuterie, like that was their specialty, of course. And just the amount of customers that came up and just said, "Wow, that was incredible." I mean, how did you do that? Or why, where did this start? Why? <laughs> I was like, oh, I just love it. And yeah. But don't get me wrong, like, I felt like we've tried every single different combination with those. So there's been a lot of failures as well. But, um, I mean, those four years of running the restaurant, I mean, I've taken the best stuff that we've done, and then that's what I'm presenting to the restaurants around Brisbane. Take us back to when you were young. What's, what sort of role did food play in your family? We weren't a foodie family. I mean, I always loved food. But um, because we didn't go out to fine dining restaurants, I just didn't know that world. Um, but I mean, it still didn't mean you couldn't enjoy it. Like you, you can still make a chicken sandwich fucking amazing and, and you understand the evolution of that. But, um, we weren't foodie, we weren't a foodie family, but, um, and then as soon as, as soon as I started doing my apprenticeship and then got involved with it, I remember, um, I remember eating Wagyu steak for the first time and it just destroyed me. Like you can't go to a barbecue ever again. Because you've had this nine score wagyu, and then, and then you go to the family barbecue, and you're like, "What is this?" I mean, I've had the best stuff around, and I want that again. It's just that constant search for perfection and, and flavour. Tell us about the early years in, in commercial kitchens. What were the real sort of important moments for you as you were climbing the ladder? Important moments. The the place that I learnt the most was I did most of my apprenticeship under David Rayner. And it seems a lot of guys, a lot of um, apprentices moved around, but um, I, I didn't need to because I started with him at Parado. So it was, of course, quite fine dining, amazing projects. Like his seafood was just incredible. Like I remember the guys just knocking on the back door with like big loins of like big eye tuna. And I guess at the time you appreciate it, but you appreciate it a lot more 10 years down the track and you're just knowing how good you had it. And then from there, David bought his own place, the River House, um, 
it was a small place in Nooseville. And um, daily changing menu. So you'd come in, the, the veg supplier would just do a market run or and go to his local um, growers, bring it in, you'd write your menu, you print it that night, and you'd start again the next day. And it was it, it was never, ever a draw. I mean, you were going home, you were studying, you were just seeing how you could evolve dishes or just learning how to use all this different produce. That was massive for me. I mean, the repertoire just went from like the standard like apprentice will do the same dish, you know, sometimes a year straight without changing the menu. But, I mean, having this repertoire of all these different stuff to work with, and we were so lucky having an amazing team there. Like we had Lana Sapwell there. We had all these good names that came out of there and we're all still really good friends. With. Um, yeah, and again, like looking back and at the time, you didn't really appreciate just fucking loved food. It worked hard, partied hard. And now looking back, what we actually got out of it career-wise is just phenomenal. What was it like for you stepping into your first head chef role and taking ownership of, of the food program of a restaurant? Yeah, I guess I was pretty like everyone. I thought I was fucking incredible when I was very young <laughs> and just went out there and just done it. And then it, it, you learn from your mistakes and you look back and you see some of the stupid things you've done, but I don't regret it at all. I mean, I'd done a lot of places in Noosa and – um. I worked under some good guys and I really wanted to put my own food out there. And I was encouraged to by by a lot of the senior chefs, which um, sort of pushed me into it. But um, I was running a, a small French bistro to start off with. And, um, yeah, I mean, in the end, it, it, it went from not much to absolutely heaving in the end. And then um, I got this opportunity to go to Noosa. Someone offered me a, a position. So, um so I really did want to be back in Noosa, so I took it. And then um, it was Coconut Grove, and um, it was a small place in um, Sunshine Beach. And, again, we just started pushing, like, everything made from scratch, not fine dining, but just doing the right thing and just, you know, having fun with it, with your other staff, like bouncing ideas off people and just pushing the boundaries. So, yeah, it was great. But, of course, after running that place, I knew that I needed I needed more training. And um, and it was after that that I went over to France and, um, yeah, just getting thrown in the deep end. Like I, I went first to a um, a big brasserie in Monaco, classic brasserie, so coffee pots hanging all around the kitchen like shiny as um, the big head chef. Like a couple of – a lot of the chefs actually look like pirates. It scared the shit out of me. And especially when um, you're not that fluent in French yet, it was, it was difficult. Um, I, the, the, only the head chef had dockets. So, I mean, everything's verbal. So I was constantly sort of trying to peer over his dockets. He'd say, don't look at my fucking dockets. But, <laughs> I mean, it was great. I mean, you instantly have to learn French. So it was perfect. And um, and some of those old school techniques, like just simple things like the bouillabaisse and um, oh, just all that Mediterranean stuff, the salad of the air, the faux gas, just everything made in-house, gnocchi. I love that region actually because of the way that it's heavily influenced by Italy. You get both worlds and especially in Monaco because you got a lot of Italian chefs that come over the border because they can work for good money. So, I mean, it was a great experience, yeah. Um, but after that brasserie, um, I moved over. There was this one chef which I really liked and um, Lauren Serbo is his name and he there was a, a new place that was getting developed it was actually designed by Philip Stark, so incredible amounts of money. I think it was something like 8 million euro they did for this um, refit. 
yeah, so it's three levels. So downstairs was kind of like a, a, a bar, bar slash nightclub, I suppose. Uh, middle had this massive deck just like right on the Mediterranean, right on the Cape of um, Cap Dye. And um, then the rooftop sort of sunbathing area, I suppose it was, but it was um, like proper valet service and everything. And um, so just starting that place, like it was brand new as I was going in there. So like doing each step along the way with all those chefs was incredible and moving up the sections because as an Aussie, as a young Aussie, when you go to France, you can't fucking cook. doesn't matter. You're not French. You can't fucking cook. (laughs) And then – so, of course, you're always on larder, and that's fine. I mean, that's where you start. But then they just start to realize and when they watch you and they're like, oh, shit, okay, this guy's changing sections. <laughs> and then you work your way up from there and then just get a rapport with, with the head chef. And, um, yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, learned a lot. Pork is at the heart of a lot of what you do these days. But uh, your experiences in kitchens in France, did you, did you learn to cook pork differently over there to what you'd been used to in Australia? Yeah, I did. I don't know if it was the time – I don't know if it was just the time that everything was evolving at the same time, but, I mean, it was where I was sort of more introduced to a lot of the brining and dry aging and stuff. So, like, the last place I worked, we were lucky to have a fish fridge, meat fridge, and veg fridge. And so we really could just, just hang everything and um, and take that different step. So I, I hadn't really done that a lot. But, yeah, we worked a lot with pork, a lot with lamb, and just doing a lot of that butchery was just the biggest eye-opener, yeah. Um, not as much in the south of the, the pork. It was more – I did do a stint up um, in – I did Montpellier and then I did Grenoble. In Grenoble, I sort of learnt a bit more classic techniques doing the pâtés and stuff like that. Um, yeah, but it was really fun. Your experiences now with pork, uh, do, do you approach cooking pork differently now you've had the great insight in the to the world of charcuterie? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's a lot more precise. I mean, everything, basically everything we do, whether we're drying or cooking, it gets weighed exactly and then the exact measure of salt, the exact measure of sugar if we're using it. Or um, So, I mean, yeah, the, whether it's a dry brine or a wet brine for osmosis, um, yeah, it's it's massive. Like there's, the mass involved in it is huge. I mean, I've never done so much mass in my life. It's insane. Like percentages and stuff like that. And I was terrible at mass. So I, I had to learn all that stuff. But I mean, like cooking a, a porchetta, it sounds so simple, but um, 1.8% salt, um, all your herbs rolled up properly in the bag. Like it takes a lot longer than you think. It's It's not a day job. It takes a lot longer for that salt to penetrate than what you think. And then you're conditioning the skin. So you're conditioning the skin for a good two, three weeks, which also gets moisture loss, which is, you know, ups the flavor a little bit. And then, yeah, so three weeks later you've got a porchetta. But it's not like the old days where you just salt your pork and roast it. There's way more involved in it. It's definitely a different approach, yeah. You mentioned how important understanding the different cuts are of the pig. Do you remember the first time that you um, – Butchered, butchered a whole pig, and can you tell us about that experience? I've done a lot of suckers, um, as you do, because I mean, not well, not any restaurants that I worked in did, did the whole pig. I guess it was, um, yeah. After I don't think I did it after um, when I, after my apprenticeship in Australia until I went to France, and then um, 
I just loved the different utensils that you're using, like proper using a saw, proper using the saccateurs, like all these just tiny little techniques, like to get the ribs off. I'm like, they're for gardening. And he's just like, yeah, but they're fucking amazing for cutting the ribs and just see how neat you got it. I was like, wow, so simple, but just incredible. Those tiny little things, hey, they just make a world of difference. And I still do the same techniques now. I love it. Uh, but um, it's good being able to, like, you can really manipulate well, not manipulate. I mean, you know what you want when you've broken down the whole animal, like, and you're not just getting the like, different cuts in the bag. So you can have a bit of fun with it. I mean, yeah, you can roll the whole belly into the into the sirloin and, and do a massive pork kettle like that, or you can you can do a, hot, a um, spit roast pig by boating the whole thing out, still keeping all the skin on the outside and conditioning it. It's just so much stuff you can do. It's just so versatile too, and um, like I love the way like. Whenever I dry age it, I always I like salt it so it's properly internally seasoned, and then age it on the salt. And I love that because it, um, I mean, the soft the salt is obviously a preservative. It just, um, I just love that you can age it on the salt because it just intensifies the flavour. Whereas sometimes beef can get pretty funky sometimes when it's dry aged, and um, I, I love the moisture loss, but I, but um, I mean, I'm more into it with the pork, to be honest, rather than doing it with the beef. I just love being able to incorporate that salt and how it changes and changes the structure of the meat and um, just retains so much more moisture. How important is the quality of the pork in in what you do? Oh, massive! Yeah, massive. I mean, we had a good play around with a few different um, breeds of pigs. Like, um, I think Tamworth crossed Duroc was incredible for salumi. I, I think the best, I mean, by far the best pigs we got was from Vaughn Shields. I mean, his stuff is incredible. Like, I remember just flicking him through the photos all the time and he's just like, oh, my God. Like, just these massive fat caps on him. And it takes a bit to educate the people because, I mean, it, maybe just Brisbane, but Brisbane people do get freaked out by the big bit of fat. But, yeah, you just have to educate them. Just say, look, it's there for a reason. I mean, if you want crackling, <laughs> it's got to be left on the pig and you're going to have that beautiful fat under it. So deal with it. I mean, <laughs> it's just beautiful. It's, it's, it's a beautiful piece of meat and the fat is amazing. It's flavor. So um, it just renders throughout the meat. Oh, we had a Joshua there too at, at the last place. The Joshua was so fun. Oh, man, so we're dry, dry aging like all these pigs. So basically the – the hindquarters, like the 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 forequarter and the hindquarter, go to our salumi, um, but not necessarily that. But then mostly, like all the um, primary cuts, we'd we'd roast them up. So the Friday and Saturday night, we'd always do a whole muscle. So like it's salted, aged, and then um, wood fired in the in the josper, and we pushed that thing so hard, like it was just constantly working, just always full of meat. It was incredible. So like. Sometimes we'd break the um, the back legs down, brine them, and then um, you'd load up the josper just with um, iron bark and the coals, of course. You'd close off all the oxygen. So if there's no oxygen, there's no fire, but it's still got that residual heat from the coals. And so I just bellow smoke like the whole night. And you come in, in the morning and you just carve a bit off of the leg, and it's just fucking incredible. Like it's just so gelatinous. Oh, man, that was so fun. I, I actually miss that now. <laughs> I was talking about it. Oh, it was unbelievable. And then, yeah, like whole collars as well. And yeah, it was, a, it was another level. But like, we'd have shit 40 or 50 portions of 
talk on the pass. We only had 80 seats, and with a couple of turnovers, we'd do 100. Um, and we'd be sold out by like 7.30, and people are just like, where the fuck are we? I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Uh, we had this big um, – a mate I worked with, he, he lived on the granite belt, so he collected this big bit of like flat granite. So we had that on the sitting on the copper pass underneath these heat lamps, and we called that the meat podium. <laughs> So there was always like just this big – if you looked on my Instagram, you'll see it, like just go back a year and you see these just these big like slowly wood-smoked pieces of pork with just crackling going everywhere and um, yeah, just carving it up just directly right in front of the customer, carving up a nice sauce and garnish and send it. It was – yeah, it's fucking awesome. These days you're making some pretty amazing small goods. Can you tell us the breadth and depth of, of what you're creating there? When I first started the company, I had these. I had this idea that I was I was going to run it exactly like Picard and get the whole pigs in, and I still want to do that. But I just realised that I, I can't start. <laughs> I can't start there because like it's all me doing it. So I, I kind of I have to start doing a, a couple of cuts first, and then I'm. Um, it's, it's taken a long time just to really nail those those recipes for the big quantities. Um, and again, there's been some failures, but that's the way it is. Um, but developing those products was such a journey. And um, now I'm getting to the stage where I really can start to get the whole pigs back in and then start to um, give every muscle home, like I like to say. And that's what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> but um, I guess it, it, the, the first year is playing around with um, different flavors and getting those recipes nailed. And then the next step is um, – so, like, the last couple of weeks I've been wor- working with Vaughn again, um, getting a couple of whole mussels off him and um, whole pigs. So um, we're just trying to – I'm trying to work out a way that can work well for both of us. So um, obviously I'm just doing the salumi now. So I don't use that many primal cuts. So I'm happy for him to send the primal cuts to the restaurants, which will – benefit more and then I'll just take all the second cuts. So that's where we're working. It's to try and still do whole hog stuff, but just working more like a community, I suppose. I mean, <coughs> when I first started here, um, Ben Williamson was taking, like we were taking the whole pigs and then he was rolling them up for Porchetta, for um, Agnes, and I was taking the rest. Um, and then it just got a bit too much. Like I sort of had to tone it back a little bit, focus on what I need to do business-wise and then push forward again. So that's what I'm doing now. Fawn's great. Like, he's crazy, but um, it's been so nice getting his product through again. What's a product that you've uh, made recently that, that you really enjoy uh, making and, and also happy with the final product that you've created? Oh, we actually cracked into the first ham. So with with Vaughn's first pig that we got here, we, um, we did a whole prosciutto, of course, just because we had to. We got no space. We couldn't do we couldn't do like prosciutto as a product line, but we had to do a prosciutto because it's just what you have to do. So I guess it was probably eighteen months old, and we um, it was a couple of weeks ago we had a little wine dinner in the actual <laughs> in the actual production kitchen. So we pushed all the tables aside, put lit it up on the walls, and sort of covered it up. But it had some lights down, and then um, and then I had the big slicer out in the middle. I was uh, shaving up this pork for the first time. This this prosciutto. <laughs> Fuck, it was incredible, hey, like that nuttiness. Like, I know we're not supposed to, but we <laughs> we had it just hanging out. So it goes through stages. So the prosciutto has to, obviously, the leg has to get salted for X amount of time. 
Um, so once that salt fully penetrates, then um, it gets aged at, in the drying room, which is about sort of 10 to 12 degrees at 75 to 80% humidity. And then so after it's gone through that stage, it will still get – it'll get about 30% moisture loss, but roughly, I mean, because when you've got bone in it, it's not 100% accurate. But you get it to air in that stage, and then you can, the next stage is the summering. So you literally put a sunya on the outside, the, the fat, the pork lard and um, rice flour, and just coat the whole leg and then just sit it there, um, just hanging in the, in the cupboard, and it just – it just smells incredible. You get this yellow, like yellow fat on it, and like every time you walk past, you just walk in. It's like wow. And so yeah, we finally like after that stage, you clean it up. So you clean up all the fat. You sort of trim it up, and then um, and then slice it up. And just sharing that was awesome. Like going through eighteen months of like nursing this leg, it's just it's a whole other thing. Hey, it's <laughs> uh, it's crazy. It was actually the second time I got that feeling because the first time I um I did two prosciuttos and again the the restaurant was running we had no space so it was it was stupid to do because they're sitting there for so long <laughs> but um I did two prosciuttos and then um I went, came home and my partner was being a bit weird I was like what's going on <laughs> she's like I'm pregnant I was like yeah. <laughs> And as I always joked that when we were having a baby, we like the minimum for a hum-on is kind of nine months. So I always joked that I'd do a hum-on and then when we'd have the baby, we'd eat hum-on and then, you know, look after the baby. So I thought I was having twins because I did two legs, but it turns out we didn't. But, um, but yeah, it was incredible. We're eating this, this ham that was like older than my daughter. It was a spin-out. It was so cool though. Uh, on a global scale, how well do you think we do with charcuterie in Australia these days? It's a funny question. <laughs> I've obviously like spent the last five years eating my own stuff because I love it. I need to actually, <laughs> I need to actually venture out and try some other people's stuff. <laughs> um, of course, I've done. I've done a bit of like, oh, the De Palma stuff is fucking amazing. Like, their stuff is incredible, and. Um, they're like proper traditional Italian family. <laughs> so, um, like, I love their te- techniques. And, and if you're after a traditional product, you wouldn't, yeah, you definitely wouldn't go past them. And I just love that they're pushing the boundaries with what we can do in Australia. And um, I don't know if it was them specifically that it changed it, but I love that now that you can do nitrate-free products, you don't have to follow their rules so much as long as you prove that it's safe. So we do a lot of micro-testing, of course, because you have to. And I love that. Um, well, it's it, it's kind of hard that it's put it back on you, but it means you can push the boundaries a bit more and do and do some super delicious stuff. Not having to follow these rules that they give you that just it makes a shit product because they want you to put so much salt in it, so much shit in it, just because it's really safe. But um, I mean, they've been doing it for so long in Italy, and they don't have these problems. I mean. If you just do it properly, if you get to it nice and slow, proper amount of salt, proper weight loss, I mean, a really good pig with salt is the best fucking thing in the world. I mean, I mean, you take some of the, the Spanish hams and you just know, I mean, like the right feeding involved in it and just the right pig, and it's literally just salt and time, and that's it, and it's phenomenal. Um, so it's kind of I, I really wish we had those same pigs to play with here um, like in Australia I think 
Like that would take us to the next level being able to do that. But I understand why. And I and I still think some of our pigs are amazing. And yeah, we are doing some excellent charcuterie. Um, but it's hard to go up against that that sort of Spanish pig. Like we even got to cook some of the primary cuts in in Monaco off those Iberian pigs, and oh shit, just incredible way. Yeah, it's a whole other thing. Like we we done a couple of um, Tamworth Cross Turok into Slumi at, at Vicero. And having the fine bone structure with the really fatty pork, they say it's pretty close. And like some of the capricola and stuff that I did off it was, yeah, it was like nutty and rich and delicious, and it was very close, but not exactly the right the same thing. But yeah, we can get close, and we do. Yeah, we do excellent products of pork here. I think you've had the most extraordinary sort of career shift. Um, but what is it that you love about what you're doing? I just, I love just <laughs> that style of eating. I love just layering out the whole spread of all the different cuts and then just going to town with mates, some sourdough, olive oil. Yeah, I don't know. It's just a couple of beers. I just, that's, oh, I love that side of it. Um, the slum is interesting too. <laughs> I'm a small guy. It's, it's funny, like, actually getting into production where I'm constantly, like, carrying around 60 kilo tubs of, of like, broken down pork. Yeah, it's insane. Hey, I, I guess. I knew that was coming, but I just get, I guess I didn't expect it. But yeah, it's pretty funny. It's like it's a massive workout, eh? Well, Damien, it's been an absolute pleasure to hear a bit of your story today on The Crackling. Um, good luck with everything that you're doing. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, we will do. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.